one uh, one of the rules of uh, of public speaking, two rules of public speaking, one, never have gum in your mouth. Um, uh, Second one is you never admit to a weakness or a fault uh, as you're speaking. Um, And what they mean by that is... um, that uh, if, you've, if you drop a line, forget a line, uh, you stumble, you fall, you uh, do anything, you just act as if nothing's wrong, assuming the audience won't know if you don't make it known on your face. Uh, and the reason I tell you that um, is because in my prayer uh, for this morning, I'm going to admit a weakness. And it's not that I don't know my lines. It's not that I'm not prepared. Um, what it is is... Um, I got sick uh, with the flu on Christmas. I know, what a wonderful present from Santa. See, that's what happens when you tell your kids about No, I'm just kidding. Um, so I, uh, I uh, got sick, was down for a couple days, uh, felt a lot better uh, yesterday, a lot better, and uh, thought everything was fine. My family recovered a lot faster than I did. And, um, but last night just kind of uh, hit me again. And this morning just felt really weak on the drive to church and uh, felt really weak in the first service. And, uh, but God still was faithful. So Gabe has a pocket sermon that if I fall in the middle of the stage, he'll just kind of roll me off the steps and he will go. So just kind of forewarning for that. So, um, so in that, I tell you that because in my prayer, I'm going to pray that God would show up uh, in the spite of that weakness. And uh, so let's pray. Father, um, we're so frail and so weak, even when we feel as we're strong, even when we don't have the flu, even in our highest day, God, we are still weak. We are still nothing compared to the strength that you possess. So God, I pray that you would show up in my weakness, not only a weakness of my body, but Father, we all must confess we are weak in soul and spirit, and our body is sick with sin. And Father, what we have to offer to the table is nothing but a burden for you. We don't assist you. We don't aid you. We don't add anything to you. We don't prop you up. You prop us up, and we burden you. But in your omnipotence, in your power, you raise our burden and you show off your strength. So God, that's what I pray for. I pray that you would show off your strength, that you would speak and that you would move. Because my words are weak as my body is with the flu. I'm not smart enough. I'm not wise enough. I'm not gifted enough linguistically to spin a phrase that would convince anybody to change their mind or their, their lifestyle after they leave this room. But I know when you speak, it says that your words cut to the very heart of who we are, dividing our thoughts and our intentions. God, it's your word that pierces through 
And your word that exposes our weakness for what it is, that gives us the proper diagnosis for where our soul lies in weakness. And it gives us a prescription of omnipotence and says, I will carry you. I will solve this problem. I will be your strength in the midst of your weakness. And I will delight to show myself off in the midst of it. So God, I pray that's what you do. And I pray that when we leave this service, what we hear and what we feel, what we experience will be that God showed up in a special way. That when we leave this room, these walls will be filled, these hallways will be filled with words spoken, man, didn't God speak today? That's what we want. That's what we want. That's what I want. I pray that you do it. And you need my pray. Amen. Um, so, Phil, Pastor Phil, wanted me to, um, in, a, in a youth service, wanted me to share the heart of our student ministry, the ministry philosophy, uh, our perspective on ministry, our outlook, whatever you want to call it, that's what he wanted me to share today. And so I thought, um, as I had some downtime laying on the couch trying to keep down my toast, I had some downtime to rest and think about that. Think about it. How could I boil down our student ministry in a sizable way that could be expressed in a way that you would uh, easily understand and I would get everything out that's fundamental and foundational to what we do? And so as I thought about that, what I was brought back to in my mind was when I first came here to Valley Bible Church. You see, when I first got here, before I applied for the job, I was in somewhat of a state of bewilderment. Um, I was lost. And um, what happened was, is I had planned and set a course uh, for myself, for my family, and we were going to plant a church. And uh, this wasn't just an idea of a seminary student. It wasn't just uh, uh, out there in the clouds, hey, let's do this kind of an idea. No, we had done research. We had an 80-page demographic study of where we're going to plant the church. We had churches financially committed to this church plant. We were looking at homes. We were uh, in the process of calling moving trucks, all this stuff. I was two months away from graduation. My wife, in three months, was going to have our first child. I mean, life was happening in that moment, and everything seemed to be going as planned, and it felt like we were following the Lord and be obedient to kind of risk it all and do this church plant as a young couple with another partner. Um, and what happened is the, when the market crashed, all our funding was lost, and basically our, the churches that were f funding us and the big church that was funding us said, look, we can't even pay our staff, let alone fund a vision item like a church plant. So two months away from graduation, three months away from a baby, we have no plans. So I start applying to jobs everywhere, everywhere, across the western seaboard. <laughs> I applied to a church in uh, Hawaii, and I know it's a tough call, but uh, the big thing is they don't have any good football out there. You know, a lot of pineapples. But uh, not that big fan of pineapples, so I, I felt like that wasn't the place for me. Um, no, and, and so what happened is in interviewing, uh, I had a conversation with, with um, Pastor Dave Furtado, came out here, and I told my wife, this is how we're going to do it. I don't know what God wants me to do. I thought God wanted me to plant a church. 
And so I don't know if it's children's ministry, college ministry, single ministry, associate pastor, pastor of senior adults. That could work. Uh, right? I didn't know. Whatever it's going to be, I said, honey, this is what we're going to do. This is kind of my priority, my criteria, my mindset for going in this process. We're just going to fall in love with the church. And wherever they want us, that's what we'll serve. And that's what we felt our heart was. And so what happened is we came to Valley Bible Church, and I fell in love with the student ministry. Just fell in love with it. You see, because what I realized is my heart for ministry and Dave's heart were identical. Our ministry philosophies, our outlook, if you broke down what we believe student ministry should be, they are practically identical. And so I felt that I found a place where I fit in. So when Phil asked me, Paul, what I want you to do is I want you to boil down for us what's the heart of our student ministry. In doing that, I have to give you my heart. And the best way to express my heart for ministry, it's been shaped by my life and it's been shaped by Scripture. It's been shaped by what God has done in my life and it's been shaped by what God has shown me in His Word. So that's what we're going to do today. I'm going to share a story with you that I feel was a pivotal moment in my understanding of what church, what ministry was supposed to look like. And then I'm going to share with you two big scriptures that I feel have shaped my understanding of what ministry is supposed to be. It's a foundation, something we cannot lose. Those two passages are Exodus 19 and 1 Peter chapter 2. You can bookmark those or do whatever. We're going to run through a couple passages, and you might not be able to be quick enough, and because of time, I might not wait long enough for you to get to those other passages. But the two big ones we're covering is Exodus chapter 19 and 1 Peter chapter 2. So the story I want to tell you is actually a story that my youth pastor told, my old youth pastor told when he came here. And some of you uh, uh, met him in the, in the first service a couple weeks ago. His name is Bobby Jerome Green. He was my basketball coach, and basically he adopted me when my dad passed away and uh, just became a father fig figure for me, gave me the gospel. He was the one that led me to the Lord. He was the one, he bought me clothes, bought me um, school supplies. I mean, this guy basically cared for me. He was my dad when I didn't have one, and I call him dad. I call him father. He calls me his son, and if you've seen him, you know we don't share the same uh, facial complexion, same color. Uh, uh, he's black, I'm white. And so it's kind of the opposite of the movie Blindside, if you think about it. He's Sandra Bullock, and I'm the big left tackle, I guess. Uh, you're like, that story's not even close to being true. Um, but so the story he told was this. You see, when I was a young kid, I struggled with purpose, with purpose. And when I say that, when you say that, people think of the big why questions of life, right? And we all rattle off the why questions of life when any form of tragedy, any time the world presses us in, any time there is a, just a horrific time of suffering, pain, any sense of trial, the first escape that we usually do is we just start throwing why questions to God, shaking our fists to heaven, saying, why did you let this happen? Why, 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 why? That's what we naturally do. And I had a plethora of those questions. I had tons of why questions. I had questions like, why, God, did you allow my dad to pass away when I was 12? Why did you allow my dad to overdose? Why did you allow him to take that much of that drug? 
Why did you allow his friends not to do anything but throw him in the back of a truck and kick him out like a piece of garbage before an ER? Why did you do that? Why did you allow me to be born in a family on welfare? Why did you allow me to grow up in the projects? Why did you allow for my parents to be divorced when I was two? I had a lot of whys. And we all have a lot of whys. We're all hurting. We're all in pain. Life guarantees you one thing, and that's it will hurt you. So we all have whys. You see, but the whys wasn't the real struggle I had with purpose. You see, no matter how dark a situation, no matter how tragic a scenario, it can always be overcome if one thing remains. One thing. Now, I'm not saying that my story is the most dark and the most tragic. That's not even close to being true. But no matter how hard, how pressing, how dark the scene may seem, if one thing remains, you can overcome it. And that's hope. Hope. Anything can be overcome as long as there's hope. Hope that things can get better. Hope that life doesn't have to be the way that it is. That these situations and circumstances can be overcome. Hope that there is potential that things will get better. And that's where my real struggle with purpose was. Because I felt as if I had no hope. I felt as if there was no way that anything was going to get better. That there was no potential for my life to be more than what it was. That there was no hope of me breaking free from the cycle that I was in. That there was no hope, any light in the room that I felt my life was just full of darkness. No hope. And the reason I felt that is because everybody knows in the ghettos of poverty, there are three escapes. There's sports, there's crime, and there's education. Sociologists call it social mobility escalators, which is just a big term escalator. You think it takes you from the bottom to the top. How do you get out of the situation that you find yourself in? And when you're in poverty, it's either sports, crime, or education. Now, you know crime, of course, is not the answer. It's just going to keep you there. But those are the escapes. Those are the doors that people feel is the only thing that will lead them in hope to do that is sports, education, or sorry, sports, crime, and education. And as you can tell by my physical giftedness and stature, sports and crime is really not what I'm made for, right? Unless it's like to be a jockey or something, right? That's not what I'm made for. So I knew as a kid, I knew that. I knew that. Crime? Come on. If I come to your door asking for money that you owe me, what are you going to do? You're going to shut the door, right? I'm not an enforcer. Right? That's not how it works. So I knew as a young boy that education was the only way out. I knew that. And you would think, okay, well, there's your hope. There's your door. You see, that didn't give me hope. That slammed the door on hope. You see, because when I was a, um, a little kid, I was struggling in first grade. In first grade, I was struggling. You don't do much in first grade, and I was struggling. And um, so what they decided to do is, is there's something wrong with Paul. Maybe it's his vision which they were partially correct. Um, and maybe he has learning disabilities. So they tested me. 
And it turns out I scored really well on that test. Uh, and I had severe dyslexia. You see, and the greatest de- detriment in having a learning disability is not having the resources to cope with that disability. And being in a low-funded school district, that was the exact situation and scenario that I found myself in. You see, what they did is they didn't know what to do with me. They didn't have the funding to deal with me. So they put me in a class where someone would read everything to me. And then I would answer the questions. And I did well in that format. I could process information. I could come to conclusions. I can process data, but I couldn't gather it. I couldn't read And what this did, it it made a perpetual dependency on somebody else to glean information from, to read for me. I couldn't do it on my own. This dependency was all the way up until I entered high school. In eighth grade, at the age of 13, I was completely, utterly, phonetically ignorant. I didn't know A said A and B said B. I didn't know. And so what I thought is what am I going to do with my life? And this all came crashing down. And I don't know if it was just being a child and being naive, but I never really realized the gravity and weight of my situation. Until one day I was watching a TV program. I can't remember necessarily the particular show that was on, but I remember a character in the show. And a character in the show was an adult, an adult who couldn't read. And I just remember the anger and the frustration in that character. I remember the hopelessness that this character portrayed. And at that moment, it hit me. What on earth can I do? I can't follow directions. Why? I can't read. I I, I can't even, like, work at a fast food place. You've got to read directions. You've got to be able to read a menu. I couldn't read street signs. I couldn't read anything, anything. What on earth was I going to do? So this was my plan. This is my way out. You see, I figured I would just follow the pattern of my parents. Both my parents are um, fully disabled, um, chemically imbalanced, uh, so not physically necessarily disabled, but they're chemically imbalanced, severely bipolar, manic-depressive. So much so that they are on full disability from the government. They cannot sustain a job, cannot deal with the stresses of what a work environment uh, gives you. And so this is what I thought as a kid. This is what I thought as a kid at the age of 12. This is what I thought. This is what I'll do. I'll act emotional enough. I'll act imbalanced enough in front of the right people. And I'll get the same funding, the same disability that my parents got. That was my shot. That was my way out. That was my door. You see, but that all changed in the most dramatic of fashions. On April 4th, 1997, in our apartment at 12 o'clock at night, that was the day I became a Christian. That was the day I got saved. That was the day I realized I needed God's forgiveness, that I broke his rules, I broke his laws. Before him, I was a guilty sinner. And my youth pastor came and told me, 
Paul, God has provided forgiveness for you in sending His Son, Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, to die on a cross for a sinner like you. And He overcame that penalty. He overcame that guilt. He overcame your punishment by raising from the dead. And to accept that forgiveness, all you have to do is trust in Christ and turn from your sin. And at that moment, I received salvation. But at that moment, I received purpose. You see, and right there, right there in that simple, small statement, that is the heartbeat of our student ministry. That the gospel gives you salvation and it gives you purpose. You see, when I became a Christian, it was at that moment, and this is the story my youth pastors told to our students, at that moment, I knew what the rest of my life was going to look like. At that moment, it gave me such drive, such ambition, such purpose. I saw the trajectory of my life as a 12-year-old boy. I knew exactly where I was going. I was going to be a pastor for the rest of my life. I was going to preach the gospel that just saved me moments ago. This is not an uncommon scenario. In fact, it's the norm. Now, what I'm not saying is that when you get saved, you know instantly you're to be a missionary. You know instantly you're to be a pastor, a a music pastor, or, or a senior pastor. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this. The norm is this. When the gospel comes, it brings salvation and purpose every single time. Every single time. It's the norm It is not just a phenomenon out there for one little boy in Ventura, California on April 4th, 1997. It is true for every single person who's ever received the gospel on this planet. The gospel gives purpose and salvation. And it gave me that drive so much so that I started exploring for the first time there's got to be a way that someone like me can learn to read. And through much tears on my own, my efforts, I found a way that my mind could wrap itself around an idea of learning to read. And in one summer, one summer, I jumped seven grade levels in reading, entering into high school. And the sweetest part of that story is I could finally read the Bible on my own. I didn't have to have my grandma to read it for me. You see, but it's not, it's not something that we often consider and think about we always stop at that first part the gospel saved me the gospel saved me but i'm telling you it does so much more for you and a perfect example of that in our our first passage that we're going to go to and then it's exodus chapter 19 exodus chapter 19 exodus chapter 19 you see in this story and i love this story I love this piece of history here because this is when Israel receives its salvation and its purpose. It's like they had the same experience that I had thousands of years before me. Exodus chapter 19, I'm going to start in verse 6. And this is what it says. When Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, their deliverance from slavery, their salvation. To tell the people of Israel, 
You yourself, sorry, have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be to me a treasured possession among all the peoples, their salvation. For all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests. There's purpose. A holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This right here is one of the most pivotal moments in the history of Israel. Before this moment, if you know the history of Israel, if you've ever seen the Ten Commandments, you know that they've just been delivered from the world power of the time who had them under harsh slavery, that being the Egyptians. And in this harsh slavery, they were delivered not by an army, but in a scene of miracles and a scene of plagues. And finally at the point where Pharaoh finally breaks in submission, when God takes his firstborn son, he lets these Israelites, he lets these Jews go. But the last scene they remember before coming to this mountain is that they crossed through a sea and saw Pharaoh's army destroyed by that same sea. And right after this scene in Exodus 19, right after God comes on the mountain of Sinai in such glory and power with thunder and lightning, and he speaks the covenant to his people in an audible voice that shakes the ground that's underneath him, and he gives them the Ten Commandments. So we are right there in between deliverance from evil and a dramatic divine encounter, and it's right there in the middle when God speaks salvation, when God speaks purpose to his people. In the first part of our of our passage right here, God reminds Israel, I've been here with you since the time of Jacob, when Israel was but a seed, and now you're a great nation. I was there preparing you, walking with you, even through the hundreds of years of slavery that you faced. I was with you, preparing you for a moment just like this, for an encounter just like this. And it's at this time that he reveals their purpose. He answers the question, why? Why did God call Abram out? Why did God give Isaac a son? Why did God choose Jacob instead of Esau? Why did God choose the people of Israel over all the peoples? The why of their salvation, of their election, of their choosing is right there in this passage. And it's in the most simplest of phrase, the most simplest of titles. The why is answered this. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. What does that even mean? What does that mean that this nation that is made up of millions, that every single individual, whether male or female, young or old, are to be called priests? How could that even be? How is everybody in this nation to be a priest? If you've ever read the Old Testament, even in a casual way, you will know that there are divisions amongst the people of Israel. There are 12 tribes in the people of Israel. And there is only one tribe, one tribe specifically set aside to be a priest. One of 12. 
one tribe. And yet God says, all of you are priests. Yet one tribe is said to be called priests, and that's the tribe of Levi. And this division isn't casual. This division isn't something to be taken lightly. In fact, if you are to cross this line of demarcation, if you are to go over that wall of division, the consequences are utterly dire. We are not all priests. It cannot be. The best example of that is in 1 Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel 13 is not a story about a common citizen, a common Israelite who tries to act as a priest. It's not what happens. What happens is a king, a king, the highest man in Israel, decides he can be a priest. And these are the consequences of what happens. In 1 Samuel chapter 3, Saul, the king at the time, is being pressed in by the armies of the Philistines. His son, Jonathan, has just won a military battle, and this has hit all the blogs, it's hit Twitter, and everybody's kind of excited. But what's happening is the Philistines are pressing in, and they are now hard-pressed, and they're scared. They're scared, but Saul has to wait. Wait for what? Wait for the priest to come and make a sacrifice so God can say, I put my stamp of approval on this battle, that I am with you as you go out against this army. So this is where we find Saul, and this is 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 8. It says, The men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed. The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. That's not where you want your army, hiding in tombs. And some of the Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Half my army is hiding in caves, in cisterns, in tombs, in graves. The other half is trembling. This is not good. It's not the way you want to start a military endeavor. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. This is the prophet and the priest at that time for Israel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him, him being Saul. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offering. Bring it here to me, the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he did this, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Perfect timing. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that the Philistines did, and that you did not come within the days appointed and the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said to myself, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself. I offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. And the Lord has sought a man after his own heart. A king lost his kingdom over this. 
There's another story of this in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. The king comes in. It says he's proud. It says he's arrogant. He comes in with a censer and says, I'm going to burn this. I'm going to act as a priest. And it almost seems like he's going to go into the most holy place. We're not even certain priests can go in. And he goes in, and before he goes in, the high priest meets him. Scared because he's confronting a king, he brings 80 priests with him. And he stops the king and said, what you're doing is wrong. And the king became angry. You can imagine, how could you defy me? I'm the leader. I'm the ruler. I'm commander-in-chief. And in his anger, the priests say, what you're doing is wrong. This is for the priests and the priests alone. And God strikes that king with leprosy. Till the day of his death, and he gives his kingdom to his son immediately after. See, these are no minor infractions. Kings lost their kingdom over this. So how on earth, how on earth can a whole nation, every individual in that nation, be a priest? How can they serve that purpose when these kings are judged for trying to do that? How are we all priests? You see, when you don't know an answer to a question in Scripture, the best thing to keep doing is keep reading. Just keep reading. Now, it may take you time. You may start in 1 Samuel and get all the way to Revelation, and there's your answer. And that's kind of like the journey that we have to take here. In order to get our answer, I think we have to go to the New Testament to understand what does it mean for Israel to all be priests. You see, in the New Testament, the church is given the same title. You're given the same title. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, when John is writing this letter, and he's writing it to the seven churches in Asia Minor, he greets them, and he says, grace and peace to you from Jesus Christ. And then he talks about who Jesus Christ is, and this is what he said Jesus Christ has done. He has freed us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us a kingdom. He has made us priests to God the Father. So at least we know the seven churches carry the same title. Every person in that church, in the seven churches in Asia Minor that John is writing to him, John considers all of them in some form and fashion a priest. In Revelation chapter 5, when the scene is in heaven and the Lamb is about to open the seal on a scroll, the saints sing to him, a song, and they say, you're worthy to do what you're about to do to break the sail. And in singing this song, they talk about what Jesus Christ did on the cross. They talk about the lamb being slain, what that meant. It meant that he ransomed people. But look what these ransomed people are. This would include everybody in redemption history from Adam all the way down to the last saint that will live, I don't know, maybe thousands of years from now or maybe tomorrow. I don't know. I don't know how the end is. But all the saints, have been ransomed by God. And this is what it says. It says, Your blood ransomed a people for God of every tribe, every language, and people, and nation, making no classification there. It includes everybody. And you have made them a kingdom and priests. So, all of Israel's is priests. We're all priests. But what does that mean? We know we're all, we all have that title. We all have that purpose. But what on earth does that mean, how can we all act as priests, especially Israel, when they act out as a priest and they get struck down for it? What could it mean for Israel and the church to be priests, all of its members? That goes to the second main passage we're going to cover today, and that's in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. 
This is one of my favorite passages. It's one of my favorite passages because if, if you know me, I love the beautiful tapestry that Scripture is. I love how even though this book was written by many human authors, it was written by one divine mind. And there are consistencies and threads and currents that run through every single book. And the only explanation, it had one true author. And it is beautiful to see these things woven together in a beautiful picture of what redemption history is. And one of those passages where we see streams coming together, threads coming together, is right here in 1 Peter chapter 2. You see what first Peter or sorry, what Peter does in First Peter is he quotes two Old Testament passages, makes reference to two Old Testament passages. The first one is our Exodus 19 passage. The first one is when God came to Israel saying, This is what you are to me. You're my people, my possession, my holy nation, you're a kingdom of priests. That's what he refers in the first part in verse 9. And in verse 10, he quotes Hosea chapter 2. Let me read to you 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. This is Exodus 19. It's exactly what God gave to Israel as their birth of a nation. And he gives it to the church. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then this is Hosea chapter 2. But I'm reading First Peter. It says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now what normally we do when we read this passage is we think the people who are not God's people and now call God's people, the people who had not received mercy, but now receive mercy, that has to be Gentiles, meaning non-Jews. Because Israel was God's people, they received mercy, they received the Ten Commandments, they received the covenant, they received the prophets and the patriarchs. They were his people, called by his name. So when we hear in First Peter, when Peter says, not my people, you're now my people, no mercy, now mercy, we think immediately, now he's talking about the church. Now he's talking about Gentiles. But that's actually not the case. In Hosea chapter 2, which is the passage that he's quoting, Hosea is not talking to Gentiles, he's talking to Israel, specifically. You see, and Hosea had this very odd task that God gave him. Now you've heard of pastors using their kids as sermon analogies, stories, you know, my kid stubbed his toe. It reminds me of the grace of God or so, you know, something like that, right? You've heard those stories. Well, Hosea had a similar task to do that God wanted him to do, and this is what he wanted him to do. He said, you're going to have some kids, and two of those kids I'm going to give specific names to, and their names will be an object lesson, a visual lesson before Israel for their whole entire lifetime. One of your kids' names, are you ready for it? The Lord is mighty. No, I'm just kidding. It's not his name. His name is No Mercy. That's his name. I know it sounds like a street name, but it's not. No mercy. The next kid, I want you to name not my people. Can you imagine being named that? Hi, my name is not my people. Hi, my name is no mercy. You owe me money. Like I can see no mercy having that tattooed on his knuckles, 
right? It just seems very strong. But what that meant was God was saying, these sons, Hosea, Israel is like my son. And now I'm saying to my son, Israel, no mercy and not my people. Every single time an Israelite would even look at this family, every time they got that Christmas card with their mugs on it, right? They would see and be reminded of the judgment of God that was coming. No mercy. Israel, you broke my commandment. Israel, you broke the arrangement. You broke the covenant. You said you would obey and you didn't. So I have come to now give you no mercy. And the more harsher one is the second child. Not my people. You see, Israel's one stake to claim is that God called them to be his own. And they were called a people called by God, named by God. They were God's people. And God says to him this, because of your defiance, you will be not my people. You will be as the Gentiles. You will be as if I never called you. You will just be thrown in the sea of the nations as if you never existed before me. You will be not my people. And that's the story of Hosea chapter 2. But in the last part of Hosea, in verse 23, and this is what First Peter quotes, it's if God can't stand to push Israel completely away, even in the midst of their defiance and their disobedience. He can't fully push them away. So this is what he says, and this is Hosea chapter 2, verse 23. Now think of the children when you hear what Hosea says. He says, I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people. And ye, he shall say, you are my God. Now, why is this remarkable? Why is it remarkable what Peter is doing? What Peter is doing is he's taking two Old Testament passages, specifically given to one audience, Israel, and he's now giving that to the church made up of Jew and Gentile. He's now expanding it to a wider audience. And this is important in our discovery of what it means to be a priest. You see, because he uses the title priest for Israel. He uses the title priest for the church. And in between, sandwiched in between these two Old Testament quotations, where Peter is describing the people of God are now Jew and Gentile, in between is our purpose as priests. And this is what 1 Peter says in the middle of those two Old Testament quotations. He says, so we can proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Israel, all of Israel, every single person that made up that nation was to be a priest. How? By proclaiming the excellencies of him who has called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. The church, every single member of the church, every single person sitting in a pew that has confessed Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord is to be a priest. How? By proclaiming the excellencies of him who has called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. Israel was to be a priest. How? A mediator between God and man. How? By connecting God with the nations that do not know him. The church is a priest, a mediator between God and men. How? By connecting God with the nations who still do not know him. Now we don't act as a mediator as we pave the way to God. We act as a mediator as we show the way to God through Jesus Christ. What Peter is saying is the gospel is our purpose and it's our salvation. We are all priests. 
All of God's people are priests, called by the love of God to share the love of God, called to be people of God, to reach people for God, called to not only know the gospel, but to share the gospel. You see, and this is what we most often forget about the gospel, but it is the heart of our student ministry, that the gospel not only saves you, but it gives you purpose. We believe in our student ministry that our students aren't only objects of salvation, they are channels of salvation. We believe that God not only wants to save them, but save through them. You see, and to cite a very credible source here at Valley Bible Church by the name of Pastor Rich Rollins, our former executive pastor, he was sitting in a room with Dave, um, Pastor Dave, Pastor Dave Lockwood, Pastor Dave Hurtado, myself and Sean, Pastor Sean, and in a room with two master's degrees and two bachelor's degrees, Rich came in like the Jedi master that he is and dropped this quagmire of a question on us. <laughs> if you know Rich, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So Rich came in and he said, guys, I got a question for you. What is the difference between a large church and a small church? And I was like, I got this one. One's big, the other's small, <laughs> right? But that wasn't Rich's point. In the context of what we were saying, what Rich is saying, what's the difference between a growing church and a non-growing church? And this is what Rich said. Because we tried very hard to answer this question, and we kept using quantities. Well, one has a big budget, one has a small budget. One has staff, one doesn't have staff. And he's like, no, it's not quantifiable. Does it have to do with size? And I was like, wait, that's unfair. You asked the question about two sizes of churches. And then Rich just stopped us after all our babbling, the dribble that came out of our mouths. He basically stopped us and cleared the fog of our ignorance and said, the difference is this. The difference between a growing church and a non-growing church, a growing church, or sorry, a non-growing church, a small church, the pastor does all the ministry and the people have all the authority. And he said, you know, a large church, a growing church, and a growing church, the pastors have the authority and the people do the ministry. That's profound. I can't cite that. I have to cite that. It's Rich Rollins. But that's profound. And that is exactly what I'm talking about when I say that the gospel gives salvation and it gives purpose. Our goal in our student ministry is bring people so they can hear Paul Candle give you the gospel. Our goal is to equip those students to give the gospel because that's what disciples do. They make disciples. Disciples don't just come in and say, I heard a guy, he's, he's got the gospel, let's bring a crowd and we'll listen to one person. No, it's you go out equipped as a crowd and you infect the nation. That's the point, that's the purpose, to give the ministry away and not necessarily to do it but we've adopted this professional model. We pay people to minister for us when that's not it. The church does the ministry. The church is the priest. These students are priests. And let me put some flesh and bones to what I'm talking about. In our student ministry, this is the heartbeat, the, the, the culture, the structure, the vision of everything that we do. Our name, LGP and R3. Junior high ministry is called LGP. LGP means love God, love people. What does love God mean? That's knowing the gospel. What does love people mean? That means sharing the gospel. R3, to be real with God, ourselves, and others. What does that mean? Being real with God, real with ourselves, that's knowing the gospel. Being real with others, that's sharing the gospel. We keep this vision before our students. It's not something that we just brand as a logo. 
But every single time they step foot on this campus, we remind them about this vision, that this is our purpose. We've done it through bracelets. You'll see some junior high students sitting in pews here with white bracelets with black letters that say, come see. What does that remind them? You need to invite your friends so they can hear the gospel. Our high school students have bracelets that say three souls on them. That's a campaign, a campaign, a challenge that we've given to our high school students. Share your faith with three friends this school year. We have a student who before I could even get a bracelet on his wrist already fulfilled the commitment of sharing his faith with his three friends. I had one student, this is a true story, I won't say her name, but told me, I don't know who to put on my list because I've already told all my friends about Jesus. We have another student who has given the gospel to 20 different people on his campus in one day. One day. One day. We have challenged our leadership students to film their testimonies, put them online, and share them with every single one of their Facebook friends in the hopes to reach 7,000 people with the gospel through Facebook. This is why we do what we do. This is why we buy 350 gallons of yuck for a kickoff. This is why we buy 800 pounds of powder paint for a high school kickoff. This is why we make 2,000 pancakes and dye some pink and some green. It's why we make 4,000 flower snowballs. Why? Because we are trying to help these students reach their friends for Jesus Christ. And let me give you this guarantee, Valley Bible Church. If you trust me, if you trust us with your students, we make this one guarantee about our student ministry. Just one. We cannot guarantee that it's going to be the most fun that they've ever had. We cannot guarantee that they will laugh at all of my jokes. We cannot guarantee they're going to like everything that we do. But I guarantee you this. We will give them the gospel that gives them salvation and purpose. We will teach them to know the gospel and share the gospel. That's exactly what we do. And tell me, where else in society do you get that guarantee? Do the Boy Scouts guarantee it? Do the Girl Scouts guarantee it? Boys clubs guarantee it? Basketball camp guarantee it? Volleyball clubs guarantee it? Ballet guarantee it? No extracurricular activity will win the soul of your student because nobody will give them the gospel. But right here, we make that guarantee we will give them the gospel. But that's our philosophy. That's our heartbeat. That's our perspective. But if all you've taken away from today is a a mindset, maybe an uh, intellectual thing. Now you have a grid to what we do with student ministries. If that's all you get from today, then, then I've betrayed our student ministry. You see, because it's not just a philosophy. It's not just a mindset. It's a passion. A passion that's burned into our bones. And the greatest scene of that passion is when I'm with our 40-plus adult volunteers 40-plus people, adults, volunteer in our junior high and high school ministry. And the sweetest time, the most beautiful scene that I've ever seen in our student ministries is when we are together as a group and we are praying for students, praying for your students. When we are calling students out by name, 
your students out by name, your sons, your daughters, your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephew, and we are weeping for their salvation. It is a passion that is ingrained in us, and Valley Bible Church, on behalf of all of our student ministry, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for putting up with our mess. Thank you for funding our ministry. Thank you for praying for us. Thank you for scholarshipping our kids to camp. Thank you for supporting us in our passion. There is no greater joy than to preach the gospel that gives salvation and gives purpose.